0: Welcome to MicroCollege, a podcast exploring innovative, place-based, and humanly scaled responses to the crises in higher education, meaning, and discourse in our time. Everyone knows that colleges and universities are at a breaking point, but what can be done? I'm Jacob Hunt, the director of Thoreau College, a microcollege in Verroca, Wisconsin. Join us each week as we tackle this question head on. Welcome to MicroCollege. This week on the podcast, we are excited to have Rick Thomas, who is connected with a couple of of totally unique and important um, uh, projects in higher education and agriculture. Um, He is the uh, teaching teamster at the Wendell Berry Farming Program in Henry County, Kentucky which is affiliated with Sterling College, uh, which is the home campus is located in Crassbury Commons, Vermont. Um, both of these institutions have a strong connection with agriculture, with draft animals, um, and with hands-on learning of different kinds, and Rick has, has played an important part in the development of both of them and can talk about also where, where the Wendell Berry Farming Program is, is going next. Um, just a word about, uh, you know, Wendell Berry. It's really exciting for me to talk to someone there at the Wendell Berry Farming Program and just anywhere in that in that Henry County, Kentucky country. Um, Wendell Berry is, is one of our national treasures, I would say, one of our um, one of our foremost, you know, philosophers and writers and and moral conscience in, in many issues, environmental and agricultural. So um, you know, a longtime inspiration and hero of mine. And um, and I think that what I what I know of what you've been doing there at uh at the Wendell Berry Farming Program in the past um and going forward is is really exciting. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, you're you're very welcome. This is a real treat. Thank you.
0: So you know, on the podcast here, we love to begin our conversations with people's lives and their biographies. And I think that really is also in the spirit of, of Wendell Berry and and uh, and what you're doing there. So maybe if you could look back to when you were a young adult, um, when you were, when you're, you know, coming out of high school, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, where were you? What were you doing? And uh, and what, what was shaping you
1: during that period in your life? Ah, well, that is a, that that's a that's a circuitous route to get to here today. So fantastic! So I came out of high school uh, in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, I I was, of course, looking back on it now. I can say this then. I don't know that I thought this way, but I was very blessed to be raised uh, with a family of agronomists. Really, uh, you know, and I, I didn't really appreciate the fact that we always had a big garden out back. When I was little, we we lived on a small farm. I had a horse. I was involved in rodeoing, uh, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, my grandparents, and I spent an enormous amount of time with my grandparents, uh, were, uh, you know, true people of the Depression. And in Oklahoma, that that really means something, right? I mean, they really... They really knew how to stretch a penny. Let's put it that way. Uh, so they had a, 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 a enormous garden. I never once remember sitting down to eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for lunch without having to shuck peas or clean corn or clean fit. There was you always had something else that you needed to do, and you know that kind of um, inspiration. Really, uh, you know it was it was deep inside me but again 18 19 years old I couldn't wait to get out of there Ooh. so I got into rock climbing and I headed west to California and spent a lot of time cruising around the Sierra both uh, cross-country skiing mountaineering kind of in the early days of when telemarking was just starting to get you know popular, um, leather boots, three pin bindings, y- you know, the early days. Uh, so, uh, and then lots of time spent outside just living in a tent and traveling around, you know, having enough employment throughout the year to where, you know, your thumb and a climbing rope on the east side of the Sierra will get you where you need to go. Um, <laughs> Luckily, I think uh, I met Perry, uh, who um, is is now my wife of thirty eight years. Um, I met Perry there because uh, she was doing uh, acid rain research up in the high mountains. And this is hilarious. Uh, her institution, UC Irvine, decided that they she really needed a guide. This you know twenty three year old young woman heading off into You know, the backcountry having to yuck a snowmobile off of a pickup truck and then drive 12 miles up a snow road. She didn't need a guide. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) Um, She's a a tough one. Uh, But that's how we met. Uh, We met on skis and in 85, we were married. And then uh, we headed to Arizona to Perry to pursue um, graduate school in ecology And I sort of got into bike racing while I was in the Sierra. And so that took me, I was stoked to be in Arizona because I could train year round. And there were so many quality coaches and and racers and races. Uh, (laughs) And we did that for a while. We kind of jammed around. Uh, I studied uh, exercise physiology because that allowed me to sort of be in that loop, right? To train and be involved and understand my body and, and how that all worked. Uh, Perry pursued her master's and then a Ph.D., and then we we sort of took a a bit of a turn and got out of of sort of the the traditional, you know, Ph.D. to postdoc route. Perry decided that she wanted to go and um, work in uh, education, and so that took us to Sedona, Arizona, just down the road from Flagstaff, where we went to school. And we were there for several years. We had our daughter there in '96, and then uh, we we decided that we kind of wanted to raise our daughter in in more of a of an urban or less of an urban setting and a little more a little bit different place, a little little more rural. And in, in, I was starting to feel a draw toward uh, my roots, um, which. You know, the the especially horses was, you know, we really wanted to live someplace where we could sort of establish a, a farmstead. And so this job in Craftsbury popped up in, in 1998. And uh, Perry was hired as uh, an ecologist to shepherd the four-year program for the college into existence. Prior to that, Sterling had been a two-year program. And so uh, I came on board and I, I, she calls me from the job interview and she says, well, you know, here's the deal. Uh, the pay is not great. Uh, the cost of living around here is, is pretty high. It's going to be pretty hard to find a place to afford on our salary. But they've got this amazing mission and they have this farm and they've got these draft horses that haven't been used in a while. I think- I think they could really use you. And so we arrived, you know with our then eighteen month old daughter in tow and and really set about to do the work of the college. And so we we brought that first four-year class into existence. and we've been a part of the college ever since. perry Perry has has shifted away from the college uh, in in the last ten years and pursued some of her work in ecology uh, a little bit differently. And so really that's our origin story with Sterling. Uh, the, the, the horse program had, had ebbed and flowed, uh, as these things go with the people who were there to staff the program. And when I arrived, the program had sort of lost its teamster and the horses were just sort of out and about. And so it was a great opportunity for me to come in and really, uh, I think, you know, sort of, it it was the next turn of the crank thing. I didn't do anything particularly amazing. I just stood on the shoulders of a lot of really good teaching teamsters who had been at Sterling really since the mid Mm sixties. And so I just took what it was there and built it out a little bit differently. Just, just because I brought my own fingerprint to it, you know, and then in 2018, we had this opportunity to develop a partnership with the Wendell Berry Farming Program, really with the Berry Center uh, here in, in, uh, in Newcastle and Henry County. And as we're sitting there and, and our then president is talking to the faculty and announcing this relationship, you know, he begins to he begins the sentence. And if any faculty member, and my hand just shot straight, <laughs> up, you know, I said, "Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm excited about this. Um, let's do it." And so, in 2018, uh, Leah Banns, who is is our dean uh, here, our sort of chief administrator at this end. Uh, she and I began to really build out what this program was going to look like, what this two-year program was going to look like. We moved here onto what we call Hope Hill Farmstead in 2019, lived in a camper, and began to renovate the farmhouse. And the process of restoring a pretty beat-up tobacco farm uh, has pretty much uh, been our you know, we will walk out the door, we're either teaching or we're working the farm at this point. So, you know, that got us here and we're just finishing. That was a, a built to be a two year program. So a 60 credit junior, senior year type experience. And we went through our first cohort, graduated that group of 12, started with another group of 12. And we're just in the final semester. They'll graduate in May. Something that we've learned, and I think this is probably a good time to talk about the, the evolution of the program. Something that we've learned is that the, the two-year commitment to move to Henry County for someone who's sort of our, I, you know, our target audience—I guess is the word to use—it's uh, a lot to ask, and we found that more people say no than are saying yes to come and do something like that. But all of those that say no, almost always will say, you know, if you had some shorter programming, if we could come there and just learn a specific skill, I'm really interested in draft animals. I can't take two years off to come and do that. So that's really the direction that we're going to go is, is a lower residency requirement, shorter courses, courses that although, you know, we're, we're very hands-on, very experiential in our, in our, in our teaching philosophy. We still need to use some of this kind of technology, this zoom technology, remote learning. We can, we can support people from afar. Uh, If they come here for a week, we can build programming ahead of that. Mm -hmm. Come here for a week, focus in on the real hands-on real hardcore skills Technique training, I call it, you know, really focus in on learning some new techniques and then create follow up systems afterward. So that's one type of format that we're going to pull out weekend workshops, continuing education. We're in the process of getting certified so that we can tap into organizations that require continuing education for their employees and that's fantastic but you do need to be there needs to be some standards around that Mm -hmm. so we need to get certified and we're in the process of of doing that right now so the program if you can imagine sort of condensing all of the what i you know it's all really cool stuff but if you you know condensing everything down to a skills-based instructional model that can happen in shorter time blocks and address more uh we think we think address more people, more 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 people's needs, I think, can be met in this format. So this will launch, we'll sort of roll it out um, pretty modestly this coming fall with, with a few courses focused in on training woodland workers. And, you know, I don't say loggers, I don't say foresters, you know, I say woodland workers, because we really want to look at, at, the farm woodland in a, in a lot of different ways. Uh, so, uh, we, we, we can, we can talk about that in, in a little bit, but mm-hmm. we'll roll that out. The spring of the year, we'll roll out a couple of courses in community organizing mm-hmm. and really looking at, you know, sort of like what's going on in our rural places from a, a sort of a sociological standpoint, you know, and and remember the framework for all of this is is putting Wendell's writing to work. And so when you start talking about things like neighborliness and cooperative systems, that fits right into what Wendell's been talking about his whole his whole life, really. So uh, that course and those that suite of courses same format, low residency, structured work ahead of time, online, come here for a week follow-up work, coaching really is kind of how we're viewing it, is coaching afterwards. Uh, so, and then we get into the summer months and there we're going to sort of start to, we we'll have a little time before that, but we want to sort of figure out, you know, how some of these, these blended agricultural systems that we're, we're really excited about, how to really teach those in these small formats. So, you know, certainly our livestock systems, certainly our agroforestry systems, in you know, our grass management systems, our perennial systems. You know how do we how do we put those together? That's meaningful in these in this sort of low residency format. So uh, that would be kind of our round of the country year, to use David Klein's book as an example, and that's really one of our models. We really like that idea of you know teaching in the moment for the moment, and addressing what's required of the moment. Uh, So, you know, teaching things at the right time of year. And that's that's to me, it's it's pretty exciting because, you know, you think about the busy time of year for farmers is not a time to be offering a lot of curriculum. Right. And so our off months, our winter time, you know, maybe our summer slump is a good time to get together in mid-July. You know, certainly November, December, January is a really good time to to bring people here and, and do some focused work. So you know, that's the, the overarching view. And, you know, the infrastructure that we're putting together at the farm is, is really being built out to address that. Yeah. Well,
0: that, that's, that's an overarching view, then an overarching view. That's, that's the, thank you for, for that. I was, I didn't want to interrupt because you were telling everything. So um, I'm I'm going to want to go back a couple of steps to ask about some of those things. Cause there, there's, there's so much interesting stuff packed into it, your, your story there. Um I think you know for our our audience um, for the podcast is it comes from around the world, um, many different backgrounds and, and different connections to to this idea of microcollege, and so I wanted to to you know, just get people um, who are listening to this into this the 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 mindset of thinking about draft animals, right? Because you know you you've given your title as a teaching teamster, um, and gosh, there's not many people I think who who can uh, can have the have the pleasure of using that title, and so. Um, it's a, it's a pleasure to talk to, to one of the people who is a te- teaching teamster. Um, can, you, can you talk about what, you know, people listening to this might think, wow, this is archaic. This is, you know, why, why is draft animals, uh, draft animal, draft power, um, draft animal farming or logging, why is that something that um, people might be interested in learning about? What does it bring to the modern world?
1: Yeah, it's a super common question that I that I get and often I I don't know that I've ever answered it twice the same way. <laughs> so, uh, you know, from the from the get-go, the first thing is anybody who is showing an interest in this has clearly come to some sort of reckoning with the the both the the psychological and the environmental and sort of the the physical impact of burning fossil fuels on their farm, they've kind of come to that reckoning and, and must be in some sort of a dilemma, right? Psychologically, and to where they're saying, I don't know that I want to use a tractor on my farm anymore. You know, I don't really know how to work on this thing. Every time it breaks down, which is like every day, I don't know how to fix it. And so I've got to call the tractor repair person to come to the farm. It's like $500 every time they show up right? There's this general reckoning going on. And I think what, what happens is people start asking themselves, well, I really want to do this. I really want to work my farm. I really, I really want to have this relationship with my land. I don't know what to do, but this notion of having draft animals here is kind of interesting. And I wonder... How I would get into that. I wonder, you know, what that would look like. Like, of course, I see draft animals all over the every, you know, publication that I pick up at some point along the way. There's going to be some story, some something right of a of a of a draft horse, typically with a farmer behind it. You know, maybe we associate that with with our plain communities, our Amish communities. Right. We we have that sort of general knowledge if we're in agriculture. Um, but I don't think that is really where it comes from. You know, I think it's this notion that. Developing a partnership with an animal is deep, really, really deep. And I I don't know. I've seen it. I've watched it happen. I've seen people have this absolutely transformative experience when they come and spend some time, doesn't take long usually, working with my teams. It's a connection. And it's not the same feeling you get when you sit on a vehicle. It just isn't. And whatever that is, If you could tell me, that'd be great because that's how I would answer this. (laughs) But whatever that feeling is inside of people, whatever is being triggered, it it is powerful. And so, you know, there's a lot to unpack in that comment, right? I mean, developing a relationship with an animal requires that you have access to animals and that you have access to animals that are reasonable right i mean there's some real outlaws out there that that (laughs) just you start to work with an outlaw and you're fighting this horse or mule and 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 you're not getting your farm work done well that's not going to work right so there's this real need for good animals there's this real need for animals that can handle a new teamster well that's where i come in you know that's that's what i've sort of built my career on is not only you know training teams but also training teamsters, and so uh yeah, I just it is a little bit archaic, certainly, but the thing i the you know get back to that tractor repair bill, the thing about most draft animal equipment it's it's you can start you know with with a with a general tool set which you've probably already got in the shed, a very general basic tool set with a very basic sort of mechanical mind. You can just about fix anything that's draft animal powered. Really? I mean, you know, if, if it's ground driven and you can't figure out what something's supposed to do, you just have to move it around yeah. and you'll, Oh, that's what this thing does. And here's where it's broken. Uh, you know, you do have to have a little bit of a, you have to be pretty creative and further although the equipment is still around especially the older equipment it's growing rustier by the day you know (laughs) because it's sitting in those old barns it's sitting in the hedgerows it's it's hidden off as soon as the tractors came in that equipment was pushed aside so you know there's a little bit of ingenuity that has to go into things Uh, so there's that there's that deep-seated connection that happens when people start to work with draft animals that i don't know that you may experience with, with the machine. There's a level of craft associated with the the Teamsters trade. And that's something that I'm finding when people jump into this, at the end of the day, there's sort of, there's work that was done and there's work that was done with the draft animals and there's this sort of sense of of uh it really is craft you know to me it's like you know this took a lot of finesse today this took a lot of art in order for me to navigate this day with these animals it was really frustrating at times but also really like amazingly blissful at times right. and and so you know again i just don't know that you i think because it's so hard and it really is hard i mean it it's not. It's not easy, uh, but it 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 again. It, it's like this sense of accomplishment that people gain when they when they achieve what they want to do on their farm with their draft animals. Uh, not to get too sappy, but um, it's emotional, <laughs> you know. And and I mean, there's something about in the evening when I'm walking back with my draft cattle and they're they're ambling along behind me and i can hear you know the the ring that's like music to my ear you know i can hear the rings clattering a little bit and you know the hooves on the on the lane come right behind me and i'm just walking and they're just walking and it's harmony you know it's super super harmony And so the, again, that's just something I don't experience. I don't have to wear hearing protection, you know, Um, (laughs) when I'm working, I can hear the birds. I can, I can see, I can smell the soil when I'm working in it. You know, those are all like, I think it just continues to build that deep connection as to why we have made this decision to be a farmer in the first place. That is a, you know, a really long, answer (laughs) but it's because it's so it's so complex and it's so personal Um, people are going to get into this for different reasons these aren't my words somebody else said this a long time ago and I, i use it often but you know it's it's pretty it's it's pretty clear now that the best thing that ever happened to draft animals was the tractor and that is because now only people who want to be with draft animals own them and use them and so, you know, I think life was probably pretty hard for a lot of draft animals. Um, you know, pretty, pretty tough. Pretty abusive, really. Uh, and so, uh, you know, now that there's a choice, those of us choosing draft power, we're doing it for, I think, all the right reasons.
0: Yeah, thank you. That there's a lot of poetry there what you had to say, um, and I think that that's that that's a reason to to think in this way about. About technology, about draft animals, for sure, working with a living being, you know in partnership in a way is something that that's that really changes the way you interact. But also, I can see that it changes the relationship to the land in powerful ways. Um, we're here in in southwestern Wisconsin. We are in in uh, Amish country. There's a lot of Amish farms here, so draft animals are a familiar sight around here. Um, okay. We're also um right at, near the home base of where the uh, what has become the organic valley co-op started and uh so a number of the key farmers there who started that were non-amish um horse farmers basically who were who were who were who were farming and um I think you can see a different attitude towards towards agriculture that grows out of that and certainly whenever you know uh, I have new students here from urban areas or wherever they are in the world here you know that the the depopulation of much of rural America um that's connected with technology, with with mechanization, is is something that people need to, I think, experience viscerally. Um, you know, and and that that affects you know not just the people, and not just you know, and not just the the animals, but it, it really affects all aspects of the economic, cultural, and environmental system in a way that. Wendell Berry is the great articulator of, but you can see it vividly in in big chunks in the Midwest and and elsewhere where increasingly, um for me, the picture of this is, um, I have a little 10 acre parcel of land where we work with the Thoreau students and my family has lived for for going on, you know, eighteen years now. Um, and we have neighbors who are um we have, part of the land is is being found by by Amish people. And whenever something's happening there, it's the whole family and a bunch of horses. And it's it's several days. And you can see that there are people there and animals. Um, the other portions of land nearby are formed farmed conventionally, corn and soybean real crops. And frequently the only time anything is happening on those is in the middle of the night. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and that's only three times a year, basically when it's sprayed when it's planted and when it's harvested and that and that's about it and so what can you see about the quality of the soil you certainly can't hear the birds right and soon enough there won't be even a person in the middle of the night there will be a robot right right so i, I think that these questions of, of technology and and really and draft animals and hand work of different kinds is, is really quite existential actually
1: yeah it is yeah you've nailed it yeah abs- that juxtaposition of the the Amish culture working with draft animals and humans, people, right? Uh, and then that sort of conventional, you go look at the, take a soil sample on either side. Don't even really have to get it analyzed. Just hold it in your hand. Yeah. You know?
0: try, try to put something into the soil. We've done that with our students uh, in the past. You know, what? How far can you stick a, a stick into the ground or whatever?
1: Yeah. And this, the, the poison culture, you know, that's required to farm in that mega scale. Well, it it also speaks to scale, you know, and that is part of what a horse will do for you. And that is limit your scale, right? Uh, Wendell certainly speaks about this in a lot of essays, but you know, what are people for? That's a, a good one, you know, and then all of his conversation around appropriate technology and labor-saving devices. Right, so if you start to save labor, well, you just start to exclude people. Yep. Until pretty soon, you don't need people uh, because you've saved so much labor. Well, we don't have to look very far to see that's a dead end. Uh, and and you know that's really one of I think that's that's one of the things that you are working on, and also we are you know sort of in that same vein and really looking at at sort of you know working look taking an inventory first when you first come to here take an inventory of what's here and then think about what's right not for you but for the land you know what what's right for the land when you ask those types of questions to me the draft animals fit in quite well now we can There, right there's so many really cool uh, especially market garden systems that are you know it It's so easy for people to access, you know, strategies around market gardening now and many, many different ways of looking at it. But they're all pretty, they have some common threads, right? Which is really take care of the soil. That's number one. You know, put away the plow. You know, really try not to till too much. Till when it's required, but not to till too much. And then enhance biodiversity on your farm and in, in your garden even, and it can be a small garden and you can still enhance biodiversity. And you start to do those kinds of things. And then nature really begins to sort of reclaim the space. And all of a sudden the bees come and the, the birds start to show up. And pretty soon it's a very vibrant, lively place. So that's the thing I love about looking at things, you know, from sort of a, a, a natural farming perspective is when you when you get it right and you really don't have to get it exactly right you just have to move in that right direction if you're moving in that right direction things really start to happen things begin to unfold in front of you that you just have to become a thinker and i i think that's key is when we talk to these young people who are interested in getting involved in this system we we can tell them how hard things are we can tell them their financial margins are so thin that they need to have a plan B, you know, I mean, there's all those things that we can sort of say to to people. The thing is, (laughs) it, if you're not thinking, if you're not observing, and if you're not looking, then you're going to miss it. And that plan B is going to be needed much, much sooner than you anticipated. So uh, I think that's something that the microcolleges in general, but this sort of sphere that we work in, this space that we inhabit, it really it's creative problem solving, you know, it's critical thinking. It's uh it's it's sitting down and 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 notice we haven't once, you neither you nor I, we haven't once talked about labeling any of this right we haven't talked about the kind of farming around organic or regenerative or restored where you know and i think staying away from those words is really important but what we're talking about is is systems that work for people and systems that work for the land and where's that intersection and it may not be one in one camp or another but it has to be in some way shape or form moving the land toward its natural state if we otherwise we're just fighting it right we're fighting the natural process of the land and that i've seen some amazing farms that are just you know they've 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 gotten most things wrong but they've gotten a few things really right and nature has sort of encapsulated them and it's like got this you know it's just sort of putting her arms around them and saying, okay, I see you. I see what's (laughs) happening. You know, this is cool. Um, I'm going to, we're going to get there. And I think that's the thing about, you know, every good farmer I know in November, December sits down and just asks some simple questions. What, what did we do that was right? You know, and then what did we do that was really not right? (laughs) What are we going to change? You know, how are we going to move? What are we, what what can we look to as our metrics, right? And if nature is the metric, well, that answer is pretty pretty easy, you know. So, yeah, or life, good... yeah, mm hmm, mm hmm,
0: yeah. So I think one of the one of the really um, powerful things that that you are doing, um, you know, the, the goal of the Wendell Farming Program, as I understand it, is really to train people who will farm, right and I, certainly, what we're doing here at Thoreau College, um, and I think you know, I, I personally believe that everyone should should have a, some deep experience with growing food, and with, of course, with natural environments, and um, and just doing things with their hands, and that should be part of any true liberal arts education. Um, but I think the, the 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 project of of you know preparing and nurturing and, and training people who will really make their their lives as farmers is a special. Challenge. It's a special like uh, calling, and um, I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about how, who you think about as this, who you're the audience of of students and and participants that you're seeking to serve, and what you've learned about that over the last you know three or four years, and 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 uh, and, and and you mentioned these changes that that are being worked into the program. You know who who are the people that that are that you see coming into these programs.
1: Right. So certainly we're looking, we're, we're, we're wondering if generational farmers might, who are sort of at that, well, let's, let's rewind just a second for a little bit of context. So somewhere around early 2000, the Henry, Henry County was a strong tobacco growing county. There's wonderful soil here. just amazing soil for growing many things, but it was an amazing soil for growing tobacco. So every farm here had a, a base of tobacco and it was, it was some guaranteed income. Mm-hmm. Well, once the tobacco program was phased out, those farmers have been left pretty much with a hole, a financial hole. And of course, we've got really good grass here. We're in that outer bluegrass region eroded plateau really good topsoil left uh it's 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 a fantastic place to grow grass and so along with grass comes livestock specifically cattle and so cattle was sort of always here but people have started to say well let's 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 amp up our cattle production and that will clean up the gap for tobacco well tobacco because most farmers were enrolled in the in the tobacco co-op were were given parity pricing on their crop so they knew sort of when they put that soil when they put when they put the seed in the soil they they kind of pretty much could count on an x number of dollars going into their bank account in january mm-hmm. well the cattle industry with its thin margins and its fluctuating market does not you, you you put a calf on the ground in March, there you have no guarantee that a dollar forty a pound is gonna exist in November. And so there there's this financial gap. So something that we're 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 hopeful of is that area farmers, maybe within this sort of five county area, who are are honestly not able to farm full time. So they've got an off-farm income. They're farming Friday night, Saturday, half a day, Sunday. They're taking their summer vacation to mow hay. And the rest of the time, their cattle are just sort of there in sort of a, a feeding area. I won't call it a feedlot because it's different. But they're in an, an, an enclosed paddock where they can be fed a rolled bale of hay. Uh, and then they're pushed out to graze when the farmer can get to it. And that's reality. I mean, that's just the reality of of farming in Henry County right now. There's very, I think of the 580 farms in Henry County, there's maybe a handful of full-time farmers. So that's the reality of it. We're hopeful that some of those farmers would be interested in coming to learn a couple things. Uh, Certainly, uh, you know, what can you, how can you add value to your beef herd? Right. And so I think there's some things that that we might be able to offer there. How can you graze a little bit differently? Like, can we look at some some rotational grazing systems? You you know, that's should be in, in certain circles, certainly. And if you've been involved in 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 teaching agriculture, you know, things like managed intensive grazing is is just going to be a no brainer. Right. But, you know, for the average farmer, that kind of situation, first of all, may not be possible. second of all, may not be well understood. And there may be some reluctance to make some changes. And so if we can show how to use some systems that don't require a lot of time to move fences, so really look at at the systems teaching side of it. So different ways of building temporary fence that you can do in an afternoon or you can do on a Sunday and set up three or four paddocks ahead of time so that when you get home from work, you just open a gate, boom, they move on to the next. Right. And so introduce all of those really. um, Yeah. We, I mean, they're very beneficial. It's a very beneficial way of grazing, moving animals across your land. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And so, but it may be absolutely just out of reach for many farmers. How do you water in the summer? when you don't have water out in your fields. Well, there may be some ways to to work around that. So that, that generational farmer who's already on the land, that's definitely a person we'd like to speak to. New farmers, spe- especially young farmers, uh, so daughters and sons of generational farmers who are maybe in high school, maybe in early college, who would like to move on to the family farm, but don't really... N- Maybe they, you know, maybe they got a little different approach, you know, and maybe think through like, you know, I'd like to add sheep to our operation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So how, do, how would you add a unit onto an existing cattle farm? Well, that's the kind of thing at, at, at the Berry Center farm. We have a 200 acre grass farm. You know, that's the kind of thing we can show, you know, how to do, you know, what kinds of infrastructure are needed. And, you know, when speaking of infrastructure, do it with what you already have around. So that there's not a lot of startup costs, you know. Yeah, I'd love to bring sheep to the farm, but it's going to cost $20,000 just to change. Well, how can we show how to use the systems at hand so that you don't have those upfront expenses and then build into it? Uh, So that's another group, you know, sort of that that the children of those generational farmers. And then there's this whole group of, of people, I think, who are, you know, maybe I mean, I'm 60. And they're sort of like my, they've got some land, maybe it's family land, uh, you know, maybe they've, they've just sort of been wondering about what to do with it and don't really know how to get started. They've taken a lot of maybe some courses through their extension. They're, they're, they're ready to jump into this. They're approaching that time of their life where they've got some time. That's another group that we think would really benefit from spending a little bit of time with us. Uh transitioning you know at that yeah. transition point from sort of like you know maybe not full-time retirement but maybe half-time retirement and then how can we look at in five years from now what kind of systems should we start now so that in five years when I am fully retired this farm can can really sustain us and I I don't um you know i think the 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 folks who are are you know really focusing in on sustenance agriculture for their themselves and their family maybe okay. selling a little bit to a neighbor you know th- those folks i think could really benefit from some systems training
0: yeah
1: do things a little bit more efficiently you know as a way to think about that and we don't have very many answers i mean most people Most people have the answers themselves, but as trained educators, I think what we have are maybe some pointed and uh, efficient questions to ask. I I would say that's really, you know, I'm not going to speak to a farmer about what they should do, but I might be able to ask some questions that lead the farmer to an answer simply because of spending my entire career in the classroom you know and and thinking more socratically around how we enter into this conversation that's where i get really excited about things you have all the answers on your farm you know it better than me you know it better than anyone yeah. and so i might ask some really just hard and pointed questions and get you to a place to where you're thinking about things i come back to this notion of systems thinking and that's just how i'm that's how i'm wired but to really come back to like how can we improve systems so that they become more efficient. And what does efficiency mean to you? I don't do things very efficiently with draft animals for sure, uh, but it's it's I've developed systems that make it as efficient as it can be. So those are kind of, I think, the three main pop- generational farmers, children of generational farmers, and then folks who are transitioning into some other part of their life where they maybe own some land, or about to buy some land and are ready to sort of like dive in, you know, and like, where do you get started?
0: Yeah. I love that. The notion of, of using the Socratic method to, to teach practical things like farming. I think that that really speaks to also the micro scale that you have to have to be very, very up close and personal to do that kind of teaching, which is, you know, one of the most ancient and powerful ways.
1: Yes. Yes. You're right on. I mean, it's, it's coaching really. And that's, it, that's kind of how I'm envisioning. I'm not, <laughs> I'm, you know, 25 now years in the Sterling college classroom. And now I'm transitioning to the sort of continuing ed model where I'm not going to have students in front of me every day. I'm not that comfortable yet with that. Yeah. <laughs> However, I, I'm I'm getting more excited about it because of the notion of being able to, you know, sort of coach people uh, and, and, you know, not be that sort of, not that I ever feel like I was, but that sort of sage on the stage mentality to more of a guide on the side. I really like that role of being a guide on the side and watching people on their journey and guiding them through, you know, maybe some sticky points and unclear futures uh, to let them know they're not alone. You know, that that there's a lot of people, there's a network out there of people who are in the same situation. We just have to tap into that.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I imagine. So those three groups you've outlined um, they're I'm, I'm guessing those are all three of them different from the students
1: you were working with at Sterling. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think this, the Sterling student, you know, they're they're at that point where not that Sterling is any close to typical <laughs> uh, and not that a Sterling student is anything like whatever a typical college student is like now. Uh, You know, you come to a work college, which Sterling is a work college, you come to a work college with a little bit different headspace, you know, you, you kind of know you're going to be, you're going to be working hard, you live in a small community with a little different approach. I mean, a 89 member student body, that's a different than 8,900 or, you know, many, many thousands. Uh, You know, that's just a very living in community is what's drawing those people. Uh, to the to the place and then the work itself, both in the classroom and definitely outside the classroom, which is why most of them are arriving is they want to work outside, learn outside and be with passionate educators who are also working outside and thriving being outside. So, yeah, it's a it's a really different. Gr- I think continuing education in general draws a different group of people. Uh, but you know, I still hope there's some similarities. You know, I, I always say about a sterling student, you know they're the, they're the kind of folks you would invite to supper. And they're going to stay and do the dishes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I
0: think there's a lot of things that that uh, I'm inspired by, and and uh, yes, feel some kindred spirit with with what Sterling has modeled, including you know the integration of agriculture, the size, um, the the sense of community as I sense it, and and also the sort of expeditionary component is something that we do here as well. And
1: yeah, absolutely. People, yeah,
0: yeah. people who haven't heard about it should check it out. It seems like a really beautiful place.
1: You know, it is. And it's it's it is it is held true to its to its core for a long time and through a lot of changes. And and while we, we look different now than we did 10 years ago, then 10 years ago, we look different than 20 years ago. Right. So uh, but there's a core there uh, that is um, so present and so uh, accessible. You know, is something that I, you don't have to come there with any sort of expeditionary skills and yet you will leave there being able to navigate, you know, you can live in, you could go to the boundary waters and spend 45 days living out of a canoe in a pack basket. And yet you could also go to New York city and, uh, you know, be invited to, uh, you know, black gown event and be perfectly comfortable there too uh so it's it's a training adaptable people that's what i've always sort of felt like as we're training people i've always thought that they're they're sort of kindred spirits to coyotes and oak trees you know they can sort of survive just about everywhere (laughs) so
0: fascinating yeah um yeah so i'm wondering i mean if you you know at a place like sterling where you have people are there for four years they're they're there full time they are maybe you know closer to conventional college age um, yeah, you know, there is this sort of integration of you could say the humanities as well as these these kind of hands-on experiential kind of skills. I'm wondering there at at um, as the Wendell Berry Farming Program evolves, where does that kind of literary and humanities tradition that's modeled so beautifully by Wendell Berry? How does that come into the work? You know, as you as you're doing as you have been doing it, and as you see it going forward.
1: I've always said that the humanities tie together our curriculum. And while I'm teaching more on the applied science side of things, Leah, who's my teaching partner here, Leah has the the, the 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 good, great work of tying together all of that applied work and giving it what I always say that Leah's classes give our entire educational process here a backbone, you know, And when I say that, I'm speaking metaphorically, uh, Mm -hmm. but they give it this sort of moral backbone. They give it a set of instructions. I really feel like the humanities here provide that sort of, I may put together a blueprint for how to manage a woodland in some way, given some set of goals. Leah's going to put together the culture behind the how, right she's the why behind the how so i have and sterling is no different i have always felt that that our humanities courses bring together everything that we're doing on the applied side of things and without them it's incomplete it's an incomplete education without the humanities and it's more than just because we're awarding a bachelor of arts it's because the humanities are so they, they're to me they're they're what well, I think it goes back to what I was saying with with when when somebody experiences draft animals for the first time that deep sort of like oh, right, you know, that connection when I read this and I see I am not alone. <laughs> you know, I, it's like somebody else has experienced this. Here's a here's a set of guidelines that somebody is providing to me that they've thought deeply about and that that is Uh, especially as we get into this weird, like chat box world and screens, you know, I am so nervous that we lose those sort of, those moral instructions um, and that sort of guidebook uh, that is housed in our literature. Uh, So to me, without it, it's incomplete. Without the humanities, we are, we are an incomplete education.
0: And so, how do you bring that into these these shorter form or more more remote kind of um
1: programs? I think we do it through providing guided readings. and this is where some work needs to be done and some thinking needs to take place because you're asking the same question that Leah and I talk about all the time. How do we you know how do we if 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 we're not physically sitting? at Lane's Landing, Wendell's Farm, if we're not physically sitting there dipping our toes in the Kentucky River and reading about anything that Wendell has written. <laughs> and, and how do we, you know, how do we bring that to life? I think I think we do I think we do it through some guided readings and then through our our coaching discussions. And certainly when we're here, I think that becomes our I I I don't really like to think of it as homework but that becomes our our you know those are our guidebooks. And so in order to we we can't ignore it. I mean I understand what you're asking and we absolutely cannot ignore it. So in a short course format you may only have a week's worth of time here but that doesn't mean that they didn't have three books to read before they arrived. Sure. And then so once they arrive now we're we're like oh you know, remember um, Gillian's branch. Well, what, let's go. We're going to walk down Gillian's branch this evening, oh, during our, right? During our evening, yeah. And Leah is, uh, you know, she is she, Leah's many things, but one thing is she's a a just a uh, encyclopedia of agrarian literature, and so you know she will draw from not just Wendell, but those writers who have inspired Wendell. And those writers who have been inspired by Wendell, and so you know she draws from this breadth of amazing sort of just, well, she sparks people's imagination by the kinds of readings and discussions that she leads, and so I think that's a huge part of how we do it. Um, I hope we can do it as well as I think we can. It's going to rely on on our people to do the work, you know, so there's going to be a little bit of that sort of reckoning that needs to take place. But uh, right now it, if there is a casualty of this format, that's going to be it, you know, as you don't have that sort of deep time to spend with students, but I think your learning objectives and your, you know, sort of the essential questions that you bring to the table and your outcomes they have to be tailored to this shorter format. And so, uh, you know, but again, we've got some (laughs) non-negotiables and that is, we're going to do some reading (laughs) we're going to do some discussion and we're going to do it around the edges of the day, you know, while we're having a meal or, you know, during a break, right. We're going to bring those kinds of conversations and it's going to be extremely immersive while you're here. I see it being extremely exhausting. (laughs) <laughs> to tell you the truth. Uh, but that's great. It's that kind of thing when you hit Saturday and you send everybody home. Uh, you're, you, you you, know, the connections are just like, you're just kind of in that like sky high moment, you know. Yeah,
0: beautiful. I think I'm, I'm really rooting for you to stay. To- to stick with that aspect, because I think it's essential. Um, and I think you, you know, with your connection to, to Wendell Berry and those specific places, right, it's those places are not any places, they're, they're you know, place is not abstract, right? I think that's one of the things you can get from Wendell Berry and, uh, you know, you can learn by walking behind a horse or an ox as well, His places yes. are, are unique um, from place to place. Um, but, you know, I think that for, for us here, I mean, um, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, with biodynamic agriculture, uh, that's, sure. Something that we're we're studying here and and um, part of our influence, but um, you know, in in uh, you know biodynamics, the thought of, of, of Rudolf Steiner, you know, agriculture is cultural, right? It's not primarily part of the economy. It's not. It's not. It's not about money primarily. It is a. It is a cultural institution, and you can see that with like the Amish across the road from my house, right? Community is built around around the labor, around the the land, around the animals, around the food. And I think that it, it is properly part of part of the humanities, really. Agriculture is.
1: I think it sure is. You you've nailed it really. And I think biodynamics provides again another type of framework to view the relationship that people have with the land, I think, at a very, pretty deep level, uh, I I really applaud. I, I've had the pleasure of having several biodynamic trained gardeners, mostly, come to Sterling and and guide our gardening program there, and just the the really well uh, the changes that happen to our soil, to our plant growth, to us. Really, I mean, eating that nutrient dense food, you know, building the preps and going through the process of, well, it's funny we're talking about this because just today we were making some, some clay slip and I sort of found myself thinking about vortexes, you know, <laughs> um, when I was stirring the slip uh, and just understanding those life forces that are so ever present and, uh, it, you know, greatly ignored and so those of i think it's a special it's a special place when the pers- one's perspective of working on the land is viewed through the lens of of biodynamics yeah right.
0: well rick i really have, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today it's it's a yeah i really admire your work and the work there that you're doing it's so important um thank you for taking the time to talk to us
1: oh, you're so welcome thank you so much
0: Thank <laughs> you.